And you? Tonight you get your chance. Ooh, ah, wait a minute, wait a minute. What'd you yeah. say your name was? Uh, Billy Holiday. Billy Holiday, that's my name. Stop! What are you telling me? You're talking about a man who was only 38 years old. You must learn to surrender yourself to extravagance, Henry. Poverty is apt to strike suddenly, like influenza. <laughs> Bye. Bye. My Farewell, my lieber Herr. It was a fine affair, but now it's over. And though I used to care, I need the open air. You're better off without me, my hair. Hello and welcome to Categorically Oscars. I'm Cal. And I'm Chris. And we've got another first this week. Uh, we're going to be talking about art direction or production design, as it's now known, um, which we've never done before. Um, so we're kind of crossing the categories off one by one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're working our way slowly and surely down to film editing and visual effects. Um, but yeah, I decided to go with art direction for one, because we'd never done it before, but also because I guess I just felt in the mood for some period pieces. Uh, and as we found out um, when we did costume design, um, the technical categories are great for period pieces. Um, and four of these are period pieces, of course, um, all roughly in the same period, uh, which is interesting. And then, of course, the, oh, was Travels with My Aunt a period piece, actually? I think well, I think young Winston is before the others, quite quite a couple of decades before the others. Um, yeah, I think travels with. I'm trying to think. It feels like well, we can get, we can go into this later, but it certainly okay. feels like a period piece, uh, since the woman at the center of it's stuck in the past. Yeah, um, but I, I, maybe it isn't a period piece because I think Graham Greene wrote it in like the 50s or 60s. So yeah, I don't think it is. It feels like a period piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for reasons that we'll we'll discuss. Um, but I like how um, we we we've exhausted Greer Garson categories. Um, we we've done three Greer Garson categories, and now we're on to categories where Greer Garson presented the Oscar. <laughs> yeah, she just uh, was always there. It's kind of it's nice. Um, so yeah, art direction, uh, now, as you mentioned, called production design. Um, I'm not sure why they decided to rebrand it, but maybe to, you know, fold in all the rest of it, because of course, art direction is discreet from set decoration. So I guess they wanted to fold everybody into the name of the piece, but yeah, it, it's a interesting category to look at, kind of for the same reasons um, that costume design is interesting, to kind of just look at how the um, props in the film and the look of the film contribute to the story. So, um, And these are five at least interesting stories to look at, at the very least. Um, they're fun to look at, let's put it that way. Um, mm. And so the the nominees this year were Lady Sings the Blues, The Poseidon Adventure, Travels with My Aunt, Young Winston, 
and the winner, as it was in most categories this year, Cabaret. So kick it off with uh, a little Billie Holiday. Yeah, I, 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 this is my second time seeing this, uh, Lady Sings the Blues. Um, and I don't, I don't know much of Billie Holiday's music. Um, so I guess maybe it's a failure of the, the first time I watched the film that it didn't encourage me to then go out and seek more Billie Holiday music. Um, but I mean, what I'm hearing in the film is, is fine. Um, and I believe that Diana Ross did sing, um, do her own singing for this, which was quite risky given that her voice is not at all like Billie Holiday's. Yeah. Well, it's kind of um, almost the point of the film. It exists kind of to showcase Diana Ross, right? Um, it was kind of designed as a vehicle for her. So even if she doesn't have that Billie Holiday vocal quality, it's still, you know, that's fine as far as the producers of the film are concerned. Um, this is my first time watching it, and I am not really sure how I felt about it. Um, I think Diana Ross is fantastic. She's in great. It. Um, yeah, she's dynamite, as most, I think, all the Best Actress nominees this year were. It's a really great, well, okay, not all, um, but overall a pretty strong year for the category. But the film kind of, I don't know if you found this, but it had kind of a mean spirited mm-hmm. quality to it absolutely like, it wasn't very sympathetic to its main character did you see that as well well the film like the first very first sequence it sort of begins with the disgrace really with her uh, her being put in this padded cell and going mental and then having to be put into a straitjacket so you can't really be under any illusions about what's going to happen to her if you didn't already know going into this. Um, yeah. But I, I think this goes to a point, uh, goes back to a point I made in an earlier episode when we did The Aviator about biopics being too preoccupied with the descent of the people they're talking about um, mm-hmm. rather than what was going on inside that person's head at that time. And I think this really goes to extremes in that regard. And I don't think it's like films should not sugarcoat issues like drug use, etc. But it just feels as if all the scenes in this which show Billie Holiday shooting up and lolloping a head forward um, sort of under the bewitchment of the of the drug, it's sort of like um, it's just saying, look at the mess this woman made of herself. And mm-hmm. I think the only interesting scene where it doesn't do that is where uh, she pauses the show and they have that back backstage confrontation and she finds out her mother's died and she can't actually process that news in an emotionally honest way. I thought that was quite interesting, that the drugs mm-hmm. were preventing her from doing that. Um, but apart from that, I agree, I felt it, it was very... Um, it was very harsh in its depiction of the of holiday and it without really saying different different things from one scene to the next yeah and then um to end on such a bleak note i think they were going for something akin to a butch and sundance kind of ending where it freeze frames on her triumph and 
we don't see the bloody end. But then, you know, while she's singing in Carnegie Hall, the newspaper clippings of how she then failed to get her license back, went, you know, descended back into drugs, got arrested, died at age 45. It just Mm. is like, well, yeah, here she's singing. She has no idea the shit life that still awaits her. And then she dies. The end. Mm. And yeah, just to... uh, I don't understand why they had to be so harsh or why they felt they needed to be so harsh. It was just, yeah, very strange. I did, I did wonder if that ending, the fact that she didn't have a death scene, was sort of them saying, okay, we've done enough. Um, so maybe they did at least recognize that. I don't know. But um, yeah. I do think it's interestingly made. I, I like the direction... I really like Gil Askey's song score, which was also nominated. It's, I think it's excellent. It gives the film a real old-timey vibe and it really sort of grounds it in the 20s where parts of the film, the way that it's made, could feel very 70s or late 60s, but I think it definitely, it definitely feels older than that. Um, mm-hmm. But for me, the script is the problem. I just think you can see everything coming a mile away. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think it also um, didn't have a very good editor. Like, it seemed to me that scenes, a lot of scenes kind of dragged and a lot of beats kind of Mm. dragged where there'd be a conversation between two people and then they'd get to the emotional crux of it and then they just kind of, the conversation just kind of peters out and the scene moves on to something else without any real kind of direction to what's like any real grasp of what the uh, rhythm should be. So it could have been about a half hour shorter, I think just from trimming the fat off of a lot of the scenes. Yeah, it didn't, for me, it didn't drag, but it just, it, there was just a lot of repetition of, of things that had gone before. Um, mm mm-hmm. And you can just, the film is just too calculable, like the, the whole way through and almost streamlined to be um, sort of accessible for the audience. But I think her performance is less streamlined than that. It's a bit freer. It's a bit looser. It's a bit more unpredictable um, mm-hmm. sometimes. And like I... For me, she's not the best of the best actress lineup by a long shot, but it's a good, it's a really good best actress lineup. So, you know, that's no great shame. But I think the only thing is when the script pushes her physically, you can maybe see some of the cracks in there and certain limitations that Ross had with this being her debut. Um, you know, she wasn't used to this, which makes the, the performance even more impressive. But I still think mm-hmm. physically there are some things, certain scenes where you think, okay, she is acting, but I don't, I'm not sure that's her fault. I think, I think around her, you know, she's got a script and she's got people that, you know, maybe thinking less about the character than she is. Yeah, I think that's probably it. Um, the focus largely, I don't think, was really on the getting to the character getting a great performance i think the focus was more on kind of the mm, i don't know just telling the more lurid sides and the episodic kind of uh descent but yeah for working with what she had i think she does a great job 
Like when she sings Good Morning Heartache, um, I think that's the best scene when she's struggling from the morphine withdrawal. Um, Mm -hmm. Because as she's singing it, you kind of see the old habits come back. Like what she was doing in that first scene where she's put in that dress in front of everyone and, you know, expecting them to hold out notes and they don't. You kind of see her retreat sort of back into the early days and become almost that childlike person she was um, because she's not got the morphine to help her through it. Um, So I thought she was amazing in that scene. Yeah, agreed. What about the art direction then? This is Carl Anderson. Um, um, I thought that it was very good. Um, I think that they had a strong sense of the time and place and that they uh, put together the sets to reflect the seedy nature of just about every scene, um, whether it's the clubs she's working in or whether it's in her home life. They always The sets always look um kind of marvelously dilapidated uh either and kind of in a classier way in the club but it still has that kind of lurid um cabaret-esque kind of feel to it um and i guess they they must have had great resources obviously they would have photographs and video to work from so i think they did their research here yeah i think it looks great um i don't know what the budget was on this but like even do you remember the scene with the old New York taxi, the the old yellow taxi? Mm-hmm. I thought that was really good. Um, and you know these, you've got these old fashioned cellar bars um, with ceiling fans, and that just kind of like um, it does it does kind of transport you to that period without being particularly flashy. Um, and like mm-hmm. you've got the Art Deco wallpaper as well, you know in the. Um, you know, in, in in the houses at that time. So, I w- yeah, I was quietly impressed with, with the art direction with this one. Yeah. I mean, there, there were no, like, grand set pieces or anything like that. Um, like, if they did... If they did clips of the art direction at the Oscars, which they don't, but if they did, I don't think there's anything here that would really stand out as, oh, they should show that when they announce the nominees. But no. still, it's just kind of a a well put together set always all the um all of the sets all of the interiors really reflected the scenes and reflected the kind of mood i think that you're meant to feel in each scene so success yeah uh shall we move on to the poseidon adventure uh yes slightly um grander <laughs> shall mm-hmm. we say um in design and uh, this one's directed by Ronald Neem. Eight nominations, um, plus a, a special visual effects award. And I think Airport had come out a couple of years before this, but I think this was probably the first out-and-out disaster movie um, that, that pretty much you know gets the disaster out of the way quickly and the rest of the film is sort of the adventure that follows. Um, yeah. But it's funny to see Leslie Nielsen as the captain in this, like given airplane and all that parody, you know, ridiculousness um, that he's like playing a serious role in this is quite funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny because my um, I, I think probably most people in my primary association with Leslie Nielsen is, of course, uh, Naked Gun. 
um, yeah. series, and that's that's what I saw him in first as a kid. And then when I saw him in Airplane, it was very funny, but it was a very um, kind of different role, like not as zany. He's much more of a straight man, even though he's you know has those things. And my dad told me that um, it was funny at the time because this was his first comedy, and he was known for doing dramatic supporting roles like the Poseidon adventure. So it was, it's very, it's hard to imagine though him and it's hard to watch the Poseidon adventure now, I think, and not have those comedic associations with him um, and take him seriously as a dramatic persona in the film. Um, And that's not his fault. Obviously in 1972, nobody had any problem with that. So, (laughs) but he's great. yeah, it's got. It, I mean, it's not like the film doesn't have comedy in it either. Um, yeah. With all with all the various plot lines, and I did like the Ernest Borgnine plot line. I think the most, <laughs> like their relationship, and um, like his wife's an an ex hooker, and you know he's arrested her like ten times. Yeah, I had to keep you off the streets till you marry me. <laughs> <laughs> so romantic. And the bit, the bit where they're climbing the Christmas tree, and um, Gene Hackman says to her, "You can't climb that dress. You know the dress is too tight." Um, mm. And <laughs> he's and he's like, "Oh, but she's got nothing on underneath." And then um, you know that the old habits come come through in her, and he, she says, "Oh, I've got panties on. What more do I need?" And his yep. face is just a picture. I thought, I just thought those two were so funny the whole way through. Yeah, they were. But speaking of the Christmas tree scene was hilarious. I, I had I've seen this is probably like the third or fourth time I've seen this movie and I never thought about it before. But with yeah, with Borgnine's wife and with the young teenage girl, Gene Hackman's like, You better take those dresses off. You can't climb in them. Shelly, you're fine. Why don't you why don't you keep those legs covered? <laughs> oh thank God they saved us that, Jesus. <laughs> but you know, it's like, oh, okay, so I guess we know this wasn't actually required. It's just like, well, we got some young legs that we should show off. All right, what can we, how can we do that? Well, they can't climb in them, right? I mean, Shelly can. She's a pro. But these young girls, no, they don't know what they're doing. They better they better strip down. She was a pro at swimming, um, yeah. which we, we found out because she handily has a medal on that she won when she was 17. Um that she conveniently brought so everyone could say <laughs> that she wasn't lying when she said she was a, a champion swimmer. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think, like, um, Shelley Winters has said, like, she put on weight for the role and um, her, her contract said, you know, they'd pay for a fat farm afterwards. And, you know, she 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 couldn't get that weight off. She said she was never able to get back to her, her pre-filming weight. Um yeah, but I wonder why she really had to do that. I mean, if she had mm. not been fat, the character still could have worked. They would just have to cut all of the gratuitous fat jokes, you know? It's... Yeah, it does feel like a bit of a sexist way that the character's written as this sort of old hag, almost. Yeah. Um, and Shelley Winters was only six years older than Ernest Borgnine, but he's supposed to be this kind of middle-aged uh, still relatively young and hale police mm. officer and she's supposed to be a grandmother so it's, yeah it's kind of weird but 
Uh, poor Shelley. I, I recently say, read the uh, Mad Magazine parody, and they're even worse. So, really, and, and like the all the fat jokes and all of the uh, basic, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's satire, so I guess they're excused a bit. But I have to say, I just I know we talked about a place in the sun, but I just want to shoot her. Like I, I just cannot stand Shelley Winters. <laughs> I. <laughs> It's just like got this, like this accent, and this is just like I can't, I can't, Manny. Yeah, and I just she's hated going. She's it. going for the stereotypical kind of old Jewish lady. But yeah, but we should get off Shelley. She's she she does her job, you know. I mean, I, I don't know if she's ever played a likable character, maybe a Diary of Anne Frank, but um, yes, yeah, yeah, um. But the rest of the cast is, I mean, Gene Hackman's great. Ernest Borgnine's fun. He's just, I don't know if he brought the idea to shout every one of his lines or if that was <laughs> part of the script. But either way, hats off. Um, you Red Buttons, his character was originally written for Gene Wilder. Um and Wilder couldn't participate due to scheduling conflicts. And once I knew that, kind of watching it and kind of having Gene Wilder fresh in my mind from the lady in red, or the woman in red, I'm sorry, um, yeah. I could see it. Like, And I think Red Buttons even seems like he's doing Gene Wilder sometimes, but maybe that was just my mind uh, kind of imprinting on it. Well, also he's... Gene Wilder was younger, right? So I think that would have made a bit more sense with the whole romance plot with Carol Lindley. Because um, mm-hmm. it did feel a little bit mismatched with the age gap. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and they, they never really addressed that. Yeah. I, I think the actual capsizing sequence is impressive for the time. And I guess like this is where we can bring it onto the art direction. Because... Mm-hmm. Um, in in researching for this episode, I you know I read that the the first part um, that the, the scene was done in two parts and the set was actually hydraulically controlled um, and it was tilted um, sort of tilted at a forty five degree angle and then redressed so that the the floor the deck of the ship became the ceiling and this you know they swapped it around and so there were, there was definitely there was definitely some technical uh, chops to this and it isn't affected in any way through post-production, which I think is impressive. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the whole flipping over sequence I think is done remarkably well. Um, there's a few kind of 70s touches like close-ups on people screaming that are kind of disconnected from everything mm. else. Um, but besides that, I mean, ever, the things falling over, they cheat a little, like some of the mm. chairs are battened down. Um, and I'm not sure that the tables would necessarily be like bolted to the floor, even on a cruise Maybe. ship. Maybe. Maybe. Mm. I don't know. But it seems to me like they only did that so they could do the people falling and then the rescue of, uh, of Susan. Yeah. Um, but overall, I think that the set design um is fantastic in this um it and i think it's clear that the art direction the art directing crew uh must have had a lot of fun um figuring out how to make it work 
as a right side up, upside down set, you know? I'm sure that if you really flipped a boat upside down, it wouldn't be um, exactly like that because obviously no. they could, I mean, they, they had to design it so it looked like an upside down ship, but still could function as for people to move through it. Escape through, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like ladders, which obviously can work either way and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah, the, I think they struck a good balance. And I think unless you're an actual ship's engineer, you wouldn't notice inaccuracies. Um, quick digression, though. Why did Roddy McDowell's character, who's a waiter, have such an intimate knowledge of how to move through decks of the ship within the like air ducts and things like that? He really knew he's like oh yeah you go through that vent and you crawl right through and then you can climb up through this shaft that mm. why would i know why would he know this i mean it's convenient that he does but no reason for him to the kids seem to know a lot as well like <laughs> the kids like um at the beginning he says oh he like he knows the thickness of the steel at various points in the ship and they just believe him it's this six-year-old yeah. kid they just believe him straight off the bat which was a bit silly a bit silly, yeah. But I mean, at least he had the excuse of being a little brat who's been hounding the ship's engineer, right? With a bunch yeah. of questions. And the ship's engineer tells him, I don't know how the subject of the thickness of the hull would ever come up. I mean, if I was a <laughs> six-year-old interested in boats, I don't think that would be my first question to the engineer or to anybody. But still... Yeah. At least he is like, the ship's engineer told me, and I said this, and blah, blah, blah. But with Acres, it's just like, oh, yes, I know everything about this ship for no reason. <laughs> it's Robert Donat in Goodbye, Mr. Chips, back again. <laughs> well, if the accent is bad, it's only because Roddy McDowell's is also bad, so I was being faithful to the bad accent in the film. That's my excuse. Okay, okay. I want to I want to talk about the how great the original song is, like as an original <laughs> song for this movie. It's so morbidly fun. Um, yeah. Like just it's got to there's got to be a morning after. Uh, no, you're all gonna die in the in the cruise ship wreck. Um, I just thought that was brilliant. It's just, and I think it does speak to the this genre, this subgenre particularly that there is definitely tongue-in-cheek dark humor that flows through these kind of films and you know we were talking about the swarm people go back and check check out the episode where we talk about the swarm best costume design 1978 definitely and of course i mean it it happened again a couple years later right the uh we may never love like this again from the towering inferno (laughs) won best song in 1974 so yeah great vehicles for ironic Songs. (laughs) Songs. <laughs> this is just a fun ride, you know. Um, it's it's everything that the swarm is not. It's actually enjoyable, but not in a just laughing at how bad it is thing. Uh, mm. The actors are having fun, um, and you know Ernest Borgnine said that they did most of their own stunts, and it kind of became a competition to see who could do the bigger stunt or the more dangerous stunt. So that must have been a blast. Um, And compared to the book that it's based on, it's a masterpiece. The book is pulp. Is Uh, it? Uh, Yeah. 
and and also very dark because it, the the book ends with them with some of the survivors making it out kind of the same mix and then they look down to the other end of the ship and they see another group of people some of whom they had left in the ballroom at the beginning being rescued and it just turns out they did everything for nothing and the, i think the remake's actually quite good um I remember the, the remake, yeah. remake, yeah, with Wolf is Wolfgang Peterson. Um, yep, yep. Yeah, that that's worth checking out too, in a different way. Yeah, yeah, that has. Um, I think that incorporates some elements from the book that were left out of the movie, and yeah, that's a good one. Another kind of star-studded ensemble piece. Yeah, I remember that being pretty good. I haven't seen it since it first came out, but yeah, worth checking out for sure. Travels with my aunt, however. (laughs) Don't know if I would rise to that level of recommendation on this one. People really not liking this on Twitter. No. I can see why. (laughs) Um, I'd not seen it, and I just... I was sitting down to watch it when um, you posted the trivia about how Maggie Smith's performance got kind of panned and then people started piling on her (laughs) in the comments (laughs) um so it kind of made me you know not anticipate it with quite as much enthusiasm as i had um which was already not that high but it did not disappoint my low expectations i can put it like that um this may be blasphemy to say but i'm not a huge george cooker fan in general so mm. just the fact that it was by George Cooker already made me a little, uh. um, and yeah, she's just kind of doing a Hepburn impression, it seems to me. And it seems like they didn't really change the script much when they changed actresses. When you don't know anything about this and you think, oh, it's Maggie Smith in 1972, that's a crazy aunt, you know, you think, you know, I'm so looking forward to that. And the first time I watched it, I think it was about 10 years ago and it was on TCM. I think it was like a Tuesday night. I thought, okay, I poured myself a vodka and Coke, sat down and watched this. And I thought, what is she doing? I thought, what is she doing? It's, I don't know if I would have gotten Hepburn um, if I didn't know already about the Hepburn thing. I, I just feel like it's, um, if anything, it's sort of like a demented, unfocused version of, the type of character she'd eventually refine and become treasured for. Like mm-hmm. there is, there's definitely shades of, you know, Violet and Downton Abbey in this and Lady Trentham and Gosford Park in this, but it's all mm. just feels terribly unfocused and I could never really get a handle on what the character was about and everything sort of happened in the plot, but there was no consequence to it at all. Yeah. And it it seemed kind of like they didn't really know. Like, I'm confused about whether she's really his aunt slash mother. Because at the beginning, in the funeral, doesn't she ask somebody, like, who is this that we're burying? Like, it seemed to me like she was there to con him. But then at the end of it, he's like, you know, you're my mom. And there's no correction on that. And so I, I... and maybe I missed something, but I, I was quite confused by what exactly their relationship actually was. I think it's obvious 
it was obvious to me from pretty much 10 minutes in that she's his mother and that she's lying that he's that she's his aunt because there was just something about the scene on the bench um about uh, the way she asked a question I thought oh, okay so this is going to it's going to turn out that she's going to be his mother after all and that's why she's now only turned up when her sister's died and she can tell him the truth um but I, I, yeah, I don't know why she asked about the church. Is that because she thinks she's gone the wrong place? Or is it just another way of setting up the character's eccentricities? Um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. But yeah, see, I got the same sense from the conversation on the bench, but kind of the opposite way. Like, she's pretending to be his mother or pretending to insinuate that she's his mother to further draw him in. She's asking him about his money. She's asking him about this. She's asking him about that. It just seemed to me like a con, which mm. was fine with me. You know, yeah. this is a this is a con woman. She's an eccentric, kind of slightly batty uh, grifter. Great, I'm on board. Um, but then it seemed to be that was real at the end. And yeah, I, I don't know. Like I said, maybe maybe I misinterpreted the opening and that kind of just set me off on the wrong path the whole time. But yeah, I don't know. Like in terms of Maggie Smith's critics, um, I don't think this is quite on the Amy Adams hillbilly allergy level of like absolutely scathing. But I like I think it was mixed at best. But um, I, she wasn't as bad as I'd remembered the first time. I do think there are some moments there. Um, but the problem, the script really doesn't help. The script is, you know, dirge, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. But I think what's particularly bad are the flashbacks because they work even more against her because then they just remind you that she's in her 30s and she's underneath all of this garish makeup. And you, you do kind of wonder why is she wanting to play this role? Like, And then she would end up playing people that were older than herself pretty much for the rest of her career. Yeah. Yeah, especially so after so recently watching The Prime of Miss Jean Brody, um, which was the first time I'd ever seen her young in a movie. Um, and then seeing her in this three years later, it yeah, I had the same thought. Um, like, what what is going on here? And again, yeah, exactly. Why would she take this role um, at this point in her career? But yeah, I, I don't know. Is Do we know why um, the production dropped Catherine Hepburn and decided to go with Maggie Smith? I mean, from what I read, um, it seemed as if Hepburn was not happy with um, the way that the script was unfolding and she, you know, decided to rewrite it herself. And I think that obviously didn't go down too well. Um, can we get an impression of a... <laughs> Chris did a wonderful impression of... Um, <coughs> Miss Jean Brody about three or four episodes ago that was, you know, was just um, uncanny, to be honest, but... <laughs> I I don't think... It's slightly have... more difficult. Yeah, I mean, I could try a strangled shrill screech or something along those lines, but I don't think I have the... I don't think I have the pipes to do Maggie Smith in this one. Um, sorry to, if that's uh, why people have tuned in. Um, don't, don't 
you know, close the episode just yet. We've got more fun to come, but I don't think uh, I don't think I want to try it on this one. Well, maybe Maggie if we Smith do Goss- if we do Gosford Park sometime, maybe. I think the Maggie Smith fans are breathing a sigh of relief on that one, but um, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> I mean, I did chuckle a few times at this. Like, there's, um, I think Alec McCowan is fine. He's you know he's got the straight role, which is easier, but. I think he does it well enough. And there was some comedy with him and the the strange girl smoking pot in the train, which was just a random scene. The whole film was random, to be honest. Um, yeah. Like, and the the fact it ends on a coin toss is just just completely compounds it, really, doesn't it? Like, the <laughs> fact that this this film has been so chaotic and unfocused and unsure of where it's going from one scene to the next that they then end it on a coin toss that's never resolved just sort of sums it up. Yeah. And I, it kind of made me wish that they had worked the coin toss as kind of a motif into the film. Like it could have been a comedic device. Um, yeah. It could have been like, it could have been like her way of deciding what to do and kind of contributed to the randomness. And then at the end, he kind of embraces it himself. That could have been interesting. Um, but as it is, it just kind of seems like they're like, well, we've got we've got two hours of film here. Uh, you want to just end it? Okay. And just freeze frame on the kind of 2001-esque shot of the coin. And we're done. I also liked Louis Gossett Jr. as her, as her yes. um, handyman slash lover. He was very good. Yes, although they do say he's from Sierra Leone and then he has like a vaguely Caribbean accent. Which I didn't know if that was like part of the joke or if that was just casual um, racism, but it's it obvious that he's not from um, Africa. Yeah, yeah, I thought <laughs> of that, and I'm not, it's probably a combination of both. Um, but as she she seems like the kind of person who wouldn't care too much about the exact ancestry of um, the person sharing her bed, so maybe that's why she kind of uh, does it that way. Why did this get nominated? What's the what's the appeal? Is it the source material being well liked? Maybe, um, and it, it it does have some eccentric, fun sets like um, Zachary, like Wordsworth's car with the lips all over it is funny. Yeah, um, and of course, you know, her apartment is kind of anti mamish, kind of eccentric and weird, and um, it has some interesting design features i don't think it's enough to warrant a nomination to um but yeah i guess it's just kind of a it got other nominations it got best actress got a few other technical nods so just kind of carried it into their minds and that's probably why yeah i think i do i mean the art direction's fine um yeah i do like her apartment i I like the train, various other things. Um, but like the costumes won, and the costumes are great. I know we we did Anthony Powell uh, Death on the Nile episode, but he really pulls it out the bag with this one too. Some of her outfits are great. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and young Winston. Winston a spring chicken in this. Um this is this is the early days of, of young Winston Churchill. Um and 
I think at Richard, this is directed by Richard Attenborough. And I think he was asked at the time, even, you know, the divisiveness of Churchill was an issue. And I think Richard Attenborough did say that he was more to the left of that, um, politically speaking. Um, what do you think? It Do you think it's a fairly uh, flattering portrayal of Churchill? Or... Um, I think, yeah. Um, I, th- I think that it, is continue i mean not continuing kind of the first in uh hollywood and british films great tradition of just glorifying the man um i don't think i've ever seen a portrayal of him uh where he's not just you know winston churchill and living up to the hype that he made for himself and the press and the image that he very consciously created uh, for himself and the movies are just kind of like read his book and like yeah it probably happened like that let's just film it um <laughs> it's not an it's not very flattering portrayal of his father to be fair but even oh. that is just kind of you know setting up winston as even better it's like oh yeah he had kind of a a batshit father who turned out to be a bad politician but look at him you know he's a war hero and etc um and then he just yeah. comes into parliament and immediately becomes gary oldman or you know that level of winston churchill um on his first speech so yeah i, I did not think that it was a particularly balanced portrayal of churchill and of course he had just died like five years before this right so i guess there wasn't yeah. much time to 65 uh, yeah yeah to really examine his legacy between then and now but no i didn't think attenborough really made any attempt to be anything but fawning in this yeah exactly and especially with the um colonialist elements um the Mm. war and every war scene was just so boring my god i just just completely zoned out whenever whenever that happened um but like the characterization of Churchill is pretty intent on just, you know, constant daddy issues and, um, you know, Robert Shaw as Lord Randolph, I think quite good in this, um, yeah. to be honest, the best for me, the, the best actor in it. Um, I would I would say so, yeah. Yeah, he just really got across the sort of old Victorian um ways of thinking um like there were there was an attempt outside of that to characterize churchill like i like the bit where he's being interviewed and we can't see the interviewer um and then it that kind of digs into the politics a little bit but you know this period in history should be interesting politically it was interesting the problem with this film is that it's all set before the politics apart from the end um and that bit's not interesting. You know, you don't have all the stuff about the welfare state, the advent of NHS and um, lots of close elections, rerun elections at this point. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if if they had then done the film from 1900 to 1939, there would have been a ton of stuff to talk about. But, yeah. but as it is, that they're just, in this period, it, there's just war and childhood and 
it's it's not particularly interesting really apart from apart from one thing which is the syphilis the syphilis was quite interesting yes um but like the yeah it, there's so little to talk about that the entire first half of the film isn't even really about winston it's about his father um like winston disappears from the film for long stretches in the opening and we just get um his parents yeah. so yeah it's like they even knew they didn't have enough to make a real epic yet so yeah it's kind of weird that they would focus on that so much when as you say there was much more interesting stuff to come later um, yeah with the with with the syphilis so which <laughs> it's just such a surprising thing yeah <laughs> like in a film like this it was just such a like oh okay um when they find out, I mean, the doctors, we have to bring this up again. The doctors come in and they tell Lady Churchill that her husband's dying and the reaction is so terrible, like terribly written. Like they yeah. say something like, he's going to die in the next five years from an incurable disease. Okay. You couldn't be much, apart from the syphilis, not mention <laughs> the syphilis, you couldn't be much clearer about that. And then a reaction is, you know, he can't be dying. He's he's only thirty eight, which you know mm, they've just told you he's dying. The next reaction yeah. is, what's the cure? They've told you it's <laughs> incurable. <laughs> and Puran Bancroft's got to got to act this scene. Um, yeah. But um, and then they say, but we're not going to tell him, which is what I was going to say. Like we brought up with love story and dark victory and. The, the ethics of the medical profession just an absolute shambles at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, they couldn't tell him and derail his brilliant political career. I mean, that last speech he gave in Parliament, you know, if he'd known he was a syphilitic moron, he never would have done that. So, you know, they, did, they had his best interests in heart. From what I've read, he did give one last speech that was pretty bad um i don't know if that was verbatim what it was but yeah poor guy well he's advocating for um military spending to to be reduced like he does you know um which is actually an extremely left-wing policy um but but then that's the interest but we don't get any of that we don't get any aftermath of that and we don't really get any you know much of an inclination into his wider political thoughts at all. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, kind of a shame. The the art direction didn't thrill me. Um, It looked kind of like I'd expect to see in a TV movie about Churchill. Or about anybody, I guess, not just about Churchill. Um, Just kind of like low budget like whereas lady sings the blues um and well the film we're going to talk about next really captured the time um and captured the feel and the period this just kind of seemed like they were recreating photographs or going with a vague idea of the color scheme and the kind of heavy leather-bound books that would probably be on people's shelves at that time um yeah, it didn't seem to me there was much thought put into it. I felt the costumes were much better. Um, 
I can't really see anything nomination worthy for this. I, I think it's sort of a, a nomination based maybe on the coattails of the costume design nomination. Yeah, seems to be kind of something like that. Of course, all all these nominees we're talking about were up for costume design as well. Um, of course, the winner got left out, but so yeah. Apart from cabaret, apart which from is crazy. weirdly cabaret, yeah. And that was uh, the its slot in costume design was taken by the Godfather. Um, of course, didn't win as we mentioned already. This was Anthony Powell's first of uh, three costume design wins. But I, I think the world is ready for a honest Churchill movie um, that maybe shows the darker elements of his life and career. Um, I'm kind of sick of seeing this. And also, um, Simon Ward didn't seem quite sure of whether he should, quote-unquote, do the voice or not. Like, he goes from he goes from talking normally to you know, jutting out his lips and doing the Churchill. Um, (laughs) And there doesn't seem to be much rhyme or reason to it. He doesn't develop the voice. He just bounces back and forth. Um, So, yeah, kind of a failure in that. I I mean, I do think he was the right person. He looks so much like him. Um, It's He really, I mean, I think he looks exactly like him. So I think that's why he was cast because i've never seen him in anything else mm. um, but yeah the, the voiceover voice was terrible yeah it was so bad okay so all of these nominees lost to cabaret um <laughs> and a trio of, of german nominees for cabaret which was all all shot in germany um and i i love this film i think it's an absolute masterpiece what what are your thoughts on it? Masterpiece, absolutely. Um, it's one of those years where I don't know how, if I ever you know get back to my blog and writing about these best picture nominees. Um, I'm not sure how it's gonna come down because I watch The Godfather and it's obviously also a masterpiece and one of the great films. Um, but so is this, and I, w- I just watched it today. Um, so it's very fresh in my mind now, and it's it's so good. Um, the direction by Bob Fosse, the acting, the yeah, just the story, the script is fantastic, and the feel of it, um, and just the darkness of it, and I think the boldness to make a musical this dark is just it, it comes together so perfectly. Um, yeah, I think it's one of the great films of the 70s and probably of all time. Completely, yeah. I think as well, I mean, like, personally for me, growing up um, as a quite inhibited person and shy person, um, not sure how to deal with sexuality and all that stuff, I think <clears throat> this film, like, holds quite an important place for me, like, because having watched it, it does have this message that, you know, what good is sitting all alone in your room kind of thing. You know, go out, find people like you. Um, this whole world in 1931 in Berlin just seems like a crazy, uh, amazing place to be. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's got the point where, you know, once you realise everyone else has got 
the same insecurities. Everyone's got insecurities then. Things are a lot less scary. So, I, you know, I kind of like that. And it's sort of the moment when uh, Brian Michael York is at, the, you know, is at the urinal and then the drag queen kind of sidles up next to him and he, he he's kind of doesn't know what to make of it. It's kind of, okay, welcome to... Welcome to Berlin, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's that journey. That journey is really good uh, of his character, I think. Yeah, for sure. Um, Michael York, I think, robbed of a of a nomination for this role. Absolutely. Um, and yeah, the the decadence of Weimar Germany on full display has been disputed a bit um, by by the author of the original uh, stage play and also um, other his friends um, who were there at the time um, as a little too decadent and a little too kind of um, fun-loving. Flashy, yeah. Um, okay. But I think as an evocation, it, it's not to say it's not completely inaccurate. Um, it was definitely Weimar Germany in the early 30s was a hotbed, especially Berlin, and I think as an evocation of that time, especially contrasted with the shadow, the rising shadow of Nazism, um, mm. I think it's a good choice for the film to go kind of, if you're going to go big with the decadence and with that um, with that aspect of it, I think it's a good choice for the film, even if it might not be entirely historically accurate. What did you think of the way the politics was int- integrated into the film? Because... This is something that I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten the amount that Max and Natalia's sort of Jewish subplot, you know, is involved in it, and um, the sort of introduction of anti-Semitism to Germany, and you know, the the poison seeping in. Um, do you think that works well with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I do, and I think that it's, I think that it's paced out well, and I also like that it doesn't really have a huge climactic moment. It's just kind of slowly builds throughout the film um, yeah. because, because obviously it, it didn't end there. It, it had a lot more to go. So it kind of lays that groundwork, I think, really well. I really like the, um, the way the film kind of establishes what's happening right away when you first see the Nazi officer in the Kit Kat Club. Um, and the bouncer throws yeah. him out uh, very brusquely, and you're thinking, "Yeah, that's you know, that's great." But then the next scene is basically is him getting the shit kicked out of him by some Nazi thugs, and you think, "Okay, this isn't this isn't going to end well, obviously." But it's just the film isn't going to be about, um, I guess, resisting. It's about how it's taking over and how it's already established itself and so very early on i think it establishes what what role it's going to play in the film and i think the sequence does it really well uh i didn't yeah there were there weren't any parts of it that i thought were heavy-handed or kind of misplaced i thought it was paced out Mm. really well yeah it is very much about the freedom being eroded um slowly throughout the film Mm -hmm. um and I do think, and I even like love that um, they have that that song with Joel Grey um, mocking the anti-Semitism mm-hmm. with the um, 
the monkey outfit. Um, yep. Which I just thought was a really good way of of mixing the politics with the performance. Um, but I, I, the script is great. I think um, Manelli's amazing mm-hmm. in this, mm-hmm. and it's I think particularly the end um, and the way the pregnancy plays out was just superb. Like if it had gone any other way, I think it really would have gone against the way that Sally continually deals with things throughout the film and continually looks at life and, you know, often by not dealing with them at all, you know, not not wanting to confront responsibility. Um, yes. And, you know, Manelli in that confrontation with, with York at the end, I think, you know, it's it's great because you can see Sally trying to convince herself that she's, you know, gotten rid of the baby partly to help him when it's actually not really it's about her it's because she's still so involved in the lifestyle and she's not had enough of it yet whereas he has you know and i think that's what's heartbreaking about that scene really because they're looking at life completely differently the the two you know brian and uh, sally but um sort of one's ready to move on and it's really i mean it's heartbreaking too because they would have been great just as friends um if mm. the i mean this is the one harry met sally trap the sex got in the way <laughs> um and then they can't be free it ruins their friendship um mm. because they were great as friends and even if they had just remained kind of friends with uh benefits it might have worked um but eventually it yeah it ruined everything um a very yeah just a great scene between the two of them and so underplayed and so realistic in just this despair um, and kind of existential dead end that they find themselves in. Um, just wonderful. And then, of course, the the climactic song that follows it. Uh, just cherry on the top. Yeah. And the, I'd forgotten how funny the film is as well. And mm-hmm. Marissa Berenson, you know, could I think could easily have been nominated here. Like her first scene is just comedic gold. Um, you know, when she's talking about a cold and the phlegm. I just think yeah. she plays it so well. Um, and then like Sally's lack of decorum, you know, as a counterpoint to that. The, the whole scene just really completely works. It just it just pops. Yeah, it definitely could have been. A, that's a kind of a performance I would have expected to have a supporting actress. Um nomination especially with all the rest of the nominations that the film got yeah what about the art direction then because Fosse was renowned for his minimalism Mm -hmm. it's I mean it's fantastic Um, everything like I was saying about Lady Sings the Blues about setting you in the period um, is just here but times a hundred or times ten uh, the cabaret. Yeah. I mean, we can start with the Kit Kat Club. Obviously, I guess that's the most flamboyant set piece. Um, it really just puts you right in there. And I think this is another uh, example of the set designers having fun with recreating the period, but kind of um, not just looking at a photograph and saying, "Okay, this is how it looked." Taking their inspiration from that and creating this atmosphere for this um, raucous show. Yeah, just the set design of the club is great. And I've been in places like that 
um, that I think are kind of copying Cabaret more than they're copying the original period. So it did a, it did its job in that regard. It inspired its own uh, its own aesthetic. Yeah, I, yeah. I think if 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 anything, the set decoration seems more impressive than the art direction with this. Like, you know, I think Fosse's you know stage roots kind of lend themselves more to props etc and um you know i just it really does put you in that club you never really see many people's faces it's always sort of like heads um watching um but you know it, it does feel like there are people there it's not just put onto the screen um and then you've got this the streets of berlin and various posters and things like that, which I guess they would have to put up some Nazi posters in 1970s Germany when they, when they filmed it, which may not have gone down too well. Um, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but it, it's it's really impressive. It, it It's excellent. And mm. um, it feels very authentic when you're watching it. Yeah. Although it did make me a little jealous that Sally even though she's broke, lives in a nicer apartment than I've ever lived in. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not, it okay, it's not the Ritz, but it's pretty nice for, you know, not having any money. She's got a fair-sized pad. She's got some nice furniture. It's in a, it, it kind of looks cool, you know? Well, she also says, like, you know, when she has the abortion, she's also, oh, well, I've got to sell the fur coat. Mm. And I'm thinking, well, you're not that you're not that badly off then, eh, if you've got the fur coat. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite the friend situation, though, where they're just, no. like, in the, um, in the apartment where nobody's working. <laughs> yeah, it's not quite that bad, no. No, no. <laughs> All right. Um, we've got some listener questions. We've got a few listener questions um, to go through this week. The mm-hmm. first of which is from Catherine Short, and she asks, "Is cabaret overrated?" And nope, Catherine, we Catherine, we love you, but we've just we've just waxed lyrical about it for ten minutes. So, um, moving on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Owen Daly asks, "What are your thoughts of Bob Fosse's cabaret? If you are familiar with the stage show and the differences between both products?" I'm afraid I'm not familiar with the stage show i mean i've seen bits and pieces of some of the productions um i think there was an early 90s um revival of it with alan cumming as the mc um yeah but i've never seen a full production of the stage version so i'm afraid i'm i can't really tell I have to say neither have I, um, but I do, I have seen clips on YouTube of Judy Dench um, as Sally. She she originated it in the West End. Um, interesting. In, I think 68. Um, yeah, it's an interesting fit because she, she wasn't really known for being particularly sec- like a sexy actress, of, you know, but um, it's, uh, yeah, she she did it first in, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would have loved to have, have seen that at the time, but there are some clips on YouTube if anyone wants to um, check those out. But I can't really speak to the show as a whole. I've not really seen it on mm-hmm. stage. Uh, Rob Montoya asks: Four of the five nominees are period films. Um, 
which we're not sure about yeah. now. Um, the Poseidon adventure being the outlier of the group. With Poseidon's complex and intricate sets, uh, if maybe not the prettiest, uh, Rob thinks it should have won. What are your thoughts? Without well, spoiling. Yeah, um, I'm thinking how to answer this without spoiling the ranking. Um, but I do agree with Rob that, um, and I think um, I covered it uh, quite a bit when we were talking about it, but yeah, the sets are not only complex and intricate, but also imaginative. And um, I think on on that alone, it has to be a very strong contender for the Oscar. And I think that um, thinking that it should have won is a very valid uh a very valid opinion to take. Yeah. Yeah, it's highish on my list. Um, and I agree that contemporary art direction tends to be overlooked when it comes to the Oscars. Like, it it does seem all about transporting us back to a period. Um, whereas there is some great production design in the present. And uh, that nomination for Parasite last year was quite heartening because mm-hmm. you really don't see that very often mm-hmm. anymore. Uh, Jordan Lege, Lege or Lege, um, asks, is there anything else you could have given Academy voters to convince them to give the Art Direction Oscar to the Poseidon Adventure? And he references the Just Panties, What Else Do I Need, GIF, um, f- from uh, courtesy of Stella Stevens. Uh, thoughts? Um, I don't know. Um... I'm not I sure. I know what Sally Bowles would have given them. Yeah. Didn't she later, I think she later said in an interview that she wished she'd kept the panties that she wore and she could have sold them <laughs> or auctioned them on eBay or something and made a lot of money. Um, yeah. But yeah, um, maybe she could have tried that at the time. I don't know if anybody asked her to, um, but yeah, I'm not sure what else uh, could have could have been done if it if they didn't have the evidence of the film in front of them. I don't know what else. Well, what would you have done at that time? Like put up a like an index card at the post office, or something. <laughs> in the know. window, I don't know, the telephone booth. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, people did. I mean, studios and uh, actors and such did definitely campaign and take out full page ads and. Um, all kinds of kind of underhanded tricks or throw champagne brunches for the uh, for the technical branches. So maybe yeah. they could have pushed it a bit more. Um, I don't know if they did. Um, and if they did push any category, maybe, I don't know if this was the one that they pushed. Um, they might have mm. pushed maybe harder for Shelley Winters to maybe win the supporting actress and put their weight behind that. I think... Um... Yeah, they still do. Academy still does visual effects and makeup presentations um, for for the members to view the clips of how you know certain effects were were done. Um, mm-hmm. I think this would help in every category, in every technical category, to be honest. Um, yeah, to help people decide. But if if you'd have, I agree. If you'd have really pushed that and said, okay, we had to do this, we had to do that, um, maybe people would have thought twice and. Cabaret would have only won seven Oscars. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, Andrew Carden asks, did 
I've got the garlic out for this one uh, and the crucifix. Did Shelley deserve the win? Um. Well, I have not seen Butterflies Are Free, um, so I don't know how her performance stacks up against uh, Eileen Eckert or Heckert or whatever. Um, yeah. I have seen The Heartbreak Kid and Fat City, and I can say that I would not have given Winters the Oscar over either of those two, particularly Susan Tyrell. I think it was, I think she should have won. Yeah. Um, yeah. Based, again, not not having seen the winner, but I mean, Susan Tyrell is just outstanding in Fat City, and it's hard for me to believe that any of these nominees were better than her. I can only echo that. I think Susan Tyrell should have won this, but... um. I would have voted for Heckart uh, above Winters also. I, Butterflies are Free is quite good, actually. It's quite a charming little film. Mm. Um, and I hated The Heartbreak Kid, um, so I wouldn't have voted <laughs> for Berlin. Okay. Um, <laughs> Ronaldo Sosa asks, um, he's, he considers Joel Grey to be the greatest supporting actor winner of all time. Um but a lot of people scorn his win over the three men from The Godfather. Would we agree that those people are wrong and that Gray's <laughs> head and shoulders above his competition? I, lo- I, love, a, I love a nice objective question. Uh, <laughs> um, I do agree, uh, actually, much as I love all three performances that were nominated in The Godfather um, and all three of them Oscar-worthy. I love that Joel Grey won the Academy Award for this role, and I absolutely think that he deserved it. Well, it's obvious that he won. It, you know, it helped that you had three people from the same film. For um, sure. Uh, but, I mean, to be honest, I absolutely Joel Grey is head and shoulders above certainly three of the competition. Not above Pacino, but Pacino's in the wrong category. Right. Yeah. You know, he's not. Um, so I definitely would have voted for Joel Grey. Um, I really don't think it was necessary to nominate Khan and Duval. I, I think they're both good, but I don't think it's a situation where it's like on the waterfront where all three are great. I, I don't think it's quite on that level for me. Mm. Um, so I, you know, and Khan is not in it that much, to be honest. Is that a spoiler? I might might be persuaded on Khan. I definitely think Duvall turned in at least a nomination-worthy performance as Tom Hagen. Absolutely. Um, And yeah, Pacino's in the wrong category, but he too is Oscar-worthy. Eddie Eddie Albert and the Heartbreak Kid? No. It's a kind of just a a late career thing. Yeah. and he should not have been. Uh, I don't think he should have been in this, in the running for this at all. Uh, Gabriel Guarin asks, where the hell's the Godfather? Our direction, where, so, where is it? <laughs> damn good question. Um, yeah, I think we're, I don't think there's any suspense when we get to our snubs. Um, yeah, absolutely ridiculous that The Godfather was left out of this category, uh, considering some of the films that were nominated. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That should have been a shoo-in. It's a very strange situation. And, um, I mean, it's even stranger that Cabaret didn't get nominated for costumes. But 
Yeah. It it very very it's it's very very strange that four of the five nominees in art direction got into costumes and it seems like those were the four that were that were head of the pack. Mm-hmm. Um when it comes to some of the you know they were strong you know they had strong people behind them from from those two branches so yeah i i don't know what's i don't know what was going on to be honest but yeah pretty ridiculous there we go. um okay so now we get to the question of why cabaret won this oscar and was it close um i think cabaret was pretty hard to stop at the oscars this year so i'm i don't think it was close um no I think it ran away with it, absolutely, as it probably ran away with most of these categories that it won. Um, and it, I think it won because it just looked amazing. Uh, the the care that, obvi- I mean, obviously Bob Fosse is a, as we saw in All That Jazz, uh, he's a very exacting director and a very um, hands-on director. And... Um, Everybody did their jobs exceptionally well under his leadership for this film, and uh, that includes the art direction. So, yeah, um, I mean, Cabaret only lost picture and screenplay. Yep, it got eight out of ten uh, nominations. It won. Um, that's pretty great going, to be honest. Um, so it does feel like it was always going to win this, but I mean, distant second, I'm thinking maybe travels with my aunt because it won costumes. Um, but yeah, I th- this can't have been close, Judy. No. Any snubs apart from The Godfather? Um, I think, I mean, if I'm... I'm not sure if I'm being entirely subjective because this is a, just a film that I love for other reasons, but 1776 um, mm. was a uh, a period piece about the a musical comedy about the signing of the American Declaration of Independence. Um, yeah. Which is a great film. Um, I, another one with pretty minimalist uh, art direction, which I suppose might have contributed to it, but I also think very authentic art direction. Um, in recreating the period and recreating the uh, look and feel. So I think maybe it was just too understated uh, to have to have gotten notice in this category, though it was nominated for its cinematography. Yeah, that sounds like a, a good option. Um, although, to be honest, I mean, Young Winston is hardly overstated, is it? <laughs> right. True, but it's, <laughs> about, it's about Winston Churchill, so it automatically kind of gets some get some pass yeah Richard Attenborough was a a known a known commodity at the time so I do wonder about Sounder both in art Mm. direction and costume Um, there's some interesting stuff going on it definitely seems different from the rest yeah yeah Sounder would have been an interesting one to include in this category Um, another one about the emigrants the emigrants absolutely as well it's a great. I mean, we're probably unlikely to do nineteen seventy-two categories after this because we've talked about every single category. <laughs> yeah. But um, the emigrants is brilliant, and Liv Ullman is is excellent in that film, as she was in pretty much everything. Yeah. Yeah, great film, um, and it's an interesting bit of trivia. Jan Troel, 
um, the emigrants had been nominated for international film the year before and then got the bulk of its nominations this year. And also this year, the sequel to The Emigrants, The New Land, also made by Jan Troel and starring all the same cast and characters, was up for Best International Film. So Jan Troel, the only filmmaker to have different films up for international feature and director in the same year. So pretty cool. There you go. Uh, Okay, um, wider observations. Obviously, we've got the, the Best Picture race between... Cabaret and The Godfather with that rare picture director split. Um, mm-hmm. It does feel like if if one of these had come out in 73, which was decidedly weaker, um, they, that would have swept. They both would have swept pretty much. These were beloved films. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I think... Um, if if it had come out, if Cabaret had come out the next year, it probably might even have won more, um, because the acting categories this year were pretty crowded, um, and I'm not sure. And I think maybe in '73, Michael York would have had a better chance of getting a nomination for Best Actor. Yeah, um, which he might have won. You know, I mean, Jack Lemmon, you know, winning might have been um, had other things going for it, but. He might have taken it, and so and definitely Cabaret up against um, the '73 lineup probably would have taken picture and writing. I think, yeah, would have been just a Titanic esque kind of sweep. And as it stands, you know, eight eight Oscars without Best Picture is pretty uh, pretty wild. I mean, it will be beaten. We we, we had Gravity um, winning seven. It, it's bound to be at least equaled at some point by, especially with the preferential ballot, um, mm-hmm. ensuring that if something seems like a front front runner, it can be easily derailed. Yeah, and especially now that we're seeing um, so many films getting double digit nominations, I think yeah, it's probably inevitable um, that we'll see that. Although we haven't seen too many films winning eight Oscars. Uh, it's pretty rare these days, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, okay. Um, shall we rank these? Yeah, let's do it. Do you want to go first? It's your category. Okay. Um, my ranking, number five, I have Young Winston. Uh, number four, Travels with My Aunt. Uh, number three, Lady Sings the Blues. Number two... Uh, even now I'm flip-flopping here, um, but I have to commit. Okay, number two, uh, Cabaret, and number one, <gasps> yeah. <laughs> I have to come down. I have to admit that um, the set design I was most impressed by and I think was the most uh, technically challenging and therefore most reflective of the talents of the team, uh, I have to go with the Poseidon Adventure. I did, okay, so my ranking is five, uh, Young Winston, at number four, Travels with My Aunt, and number three, Lady Sings the Blues, and number two, The Poseidon Adventure. I did consider putting The Poseidon Adventure number one, but I just felt maybe within the technical thing, that maybe there wasn't as much character to it, mm. but it's certainly a, that's the, that's the dilemma, isn't it? It's, it's 
you know, sort of uh, technical chops versus character for me. But uh, yeah. I've got Cabaret number one. But I mean, yeah, I mean, when I when I first wrote down my ranking, I had Cabaret at number one, but then I I flipped it. Um, and yeah, it's it's a tough call. I mean, yeah, it's like you say, it's kind of they're almost tied in my mind. One exhibiting, like you said, more technical uh, proficiency, and the other one being more intimately tied to the story and the characters. Okay, um, so we have a website. It's categoricallyoscars.com. We're on Twitter at categoricallyo. Uh, you can leave us a review if you want on whichever uh, podcasting app you listen to us on. Um, next episode will be on March 2nd. We'll be talking about Best Actress of 1955, which the nominees were Anna Magnani in The Rose Tattoo, Susan Hayward in I'll Cry Tomorrow, Catherine Hepburn in Summertime, Jennifer Jones in Love is a Many Splendid Thing, and Eleanor Parker in Interrupted Melody. Are you ready for this lineup? This is a this is quite a lineup. Um, I've just recently finally seen The Rose Tattoo for the first time, so I'm glad we're going to get a chance to talk about it. Um, and, yeah, uh, I'm not... No, I don't, I don't want to talk about the rest of the stuff, <laughs> Looking forward well, to it. We've got Tennessee Williams. We've yeah. got alcoholism. We've got um, Jennifer Jones as an Asian person. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's Hollywood in the fifties. What are you gonna do? There's got to be a morning after if we can hold. Let's keep on looking for the light Oh, can't you see the morning after It's waiting right outside the storm Why don't we cross the bridge together